Scishow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my (laughs) basement of my own home that I was renting. (laughs) Downstairs of. (laughs) If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary-defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks, and we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850+, plus, their best-selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if, like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. 
It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 plus Manuka honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's manukora.com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive science knowledge showcase. I'm your host, Hank Green, and joining me this week, as always, is science expert, Sari Riley. Hello. My radiator is going in a loud hiss. And our resident everyman, Sam Schultz. Hello. Sam, can you say, baked in a buttery, flaky crust? Baked in a buttery, flaky crust. No problem. Baked in a buttery, flaky crust. I paused. You did. Uh, there's a thing on TikTok right now where people are asking their grandparents to say <laughs> baked in a buttery flaky crust. And when I say right now, I mean whenever we recorded this episode. <laughs> so it's long gone by now. So like you ask your grandparent, say baked in a buttery flaky crust. And mm-hmm. and these are like people whose first language is English. And they're like baked in a calorie pakey fust. <laughs> and I like I'm amazed. Like and I were like I'm like. So first of all, I'm a little worried about getting older. And so I kind of want to wake up every morning and like look in the mirror and be like, baked in a buttery flaky crust. And I'm like, all right. Phew, everything's still, still on the up and up. Yeah. But I also think I should go to the doctor and they should get my blood pressure. They should get my pulse oximeter. And they should take my temperature. And then they should say, now say baked in a buttery flaky crust. So I think that this has diagnostic capabilities. Are there not oh. videos of young people who cannot say it? So I like people like older people often have auditory processing difficulties because they've been hard of hearing for a while. Mm-hmm. And those things can go hand in hand. Speaking of which, if you have to wear hearing aids, where are your hearing aids? We love it. Everybody thinks that's normal and great. And a lot of people don't wear hearing aids for a long time when they should, and it can lead to other difficulties. Uh, but, I want to ask my, my parents are in town and I'm like, I got to ask them to say baked in a buttery flaky crust just to see like if maybe we should do some further tests. But what if they can't? Then you're burdened with that knowledge. It's true. I should also ask my six-year-old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He definitely can't do it. You can really do the age range spectrum. Everyone who yeah. is like a middle generation has the mm-hmm. societal responsibility now to both ask their children and their parents. Where did that come from? Because I've seen that too. Do you know where? I don't know. I first saw people asking their like Italian grandmothers. And sure. they were very funny yeah. trying to say baked in a butter. <laughs> that's not fair stuff. though. Yeah, that's that's to be expected. But since it was butter, it is currently buttery flaky crust season. Uh, I figured I'd ask. Try to get my mom saying it. See what I see what I I'll come back with the results. Happens. Well, the problem is, I think, is our generation is going to keep practicing it. So this is like me 
Oh yeah. Not that I would right. get pulled over for drunk driving, but yeah, I know the alphabet backwards because I thought that was a fun party trick for a seven-year-old gotcha. to learn or whatever. Uh, I didn't know yeah. that it was a test. You at weren't all, but training for drunk driving. No, because no, that's no. what I would have assumed. But no, I just thought that's a cool way to impress your friends and make friends. Yeah, in yeah. fact, like you, yeah. you just find friends and then impress them. You're the kind of person who could tell me all of the states <laughs> in the country very quickly. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The kind of person you really want to be friends with. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Right? My real life friends um, and podcast co hosts. I know the first three states Alabama, Alabama. Arkansas, and Alaska. Yeah, that's the wrong word. I'm Alabama, Arizona, (laughs) Arkansas. You forgot Arizona, California, Colorado, Connecticut. Wow. (laughs) Not shocked. So every week here on SciShow Tangents, we try to get together to one-up amaze and delight each other with science facts while also trying to stay on topic. Our panelists are playing for glory and for Hank Bucks, which I will be awarding as we play. And at the end of the episode, one of them will be crowned the winner. Now, as always, we're going to introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem this week from Sam. From voltaic pile to double A, from humble button to lithium ion, batteries helped us get where we are today by providing us with reactions we can rely on. Imagine Ah. if cell phones had to be plugged in the wall, our laptops were bound to a power cord. Why, they basically wouldn't be mobile at all. Then what would we look at when we're bored? And how would clocks run? With gears? What a joke. Without batteries, we'd not know the time. And how would we run our detectors of smoke? House fire injuries would undoubtedly climb. So I gotta respect batteries and give them their due, even though there's something about them that does irk. No matter how much reading about them I do, I have no fucking idea how they work. (laughs) (laughs) The topic for the day is batteries, which are a way of storing electrons. Pushing them uphill so that they can come back down. Weird. Do work on the way. And somebody thought of this? I mean, I don't know, but I feel like people first made electrons kind of not knowing what they were doing. A lot of early chemistry was just like, what will what will this reaction do? Does it release mm-hmm. energy in some way? Does it store energy in some way? And there was a lot of times where we were figuring out what forms that energy took, whether it's electricity or heat or like a variety of other things. Um, we're just like, chemistry, (laughs) we'll figure it out later. If we keep putting things together and putting them in different situations with temperatures and pressures, then eventually some rules will make themselves apparent, which kind of did happen. Yeah. And I don't know if they became apparent or if people just were like very good at figuring them out. But when it comes to pushing electrons around, that took a long time to figure out. And I do, you're right, Sam, remain kind of confused about what's actually going on. There's a cathode and an anode, and there's a electrolyte, and there's wires. Question mark. Anyway, Sarah, what's a battery? (laughs) (laughs) I can do those terms. Those I can do, I think, in a way that is hopefully understandable. But sometimes I finish these explanations, and then Sam goes, huh? Uh, And then I've done a bad job. But yeah, batteries store and release energy, and they have these basic components to them. Ready. So the two the two ends of the battery that connect to a wire and that connect to another device are called electrodes. It is the conductive end of the battery. Um, and you have a negative electrode, which is where electrons 
in, in a charged battery, there are a lot of electrons. Um, electrons are negatively charged particles. Um, and so we have a bunch of them in one place. If you have one, a bunch of them gathered at one electrode, and that is the negative electrode. Um, it's also called the anode in lots of cases, um, because when a battery is powering something else, that's where the current is leaving. That's where the electrons are leaving. And then the other end of the battery is the positive electrode. So it's another conductive end of the battery, but it just has relatively fewer electrons. So with fewer electrons, it is more positively charged relative to the negative electrode. Within the battery, they are separated by the electrolyte, which is a substance. It can be a liquid. It can be a gel. It can be a solid. Uh, there can be membranes involved that separates the anode and the cathode. Um, sometimes the electrolyte acts as that separator, but sometimes there's an extra material separating them so that the electrons can't go within the battery in many cases from one electrode to another because that would be a short circuit. Then the, all the current would happen inside the battery. You wouldn't be able to power another device if the electrons could just rebalance within the battery cell. Instead, the electrolyte allows uh, charged ions to move back and forth to balance things out, basically. When you connect through like a wire, the negative electrode of the battery to like a light bulb to the positive electrode, then that gives a path for the electrons to flow. They can't flow within the battery, but they can flow like outside around the battery and through the light bulb or whether, whatever device you want to power. I guess like Hank said, rolling down the hill from the, the place where there's a ton of electrons going to the place where there aren't so many and there's a lot more room for them to like hang out and be around. And they go back in the battery? And they go back in the battery, yeah. But they, mm. at both electrodes, they're made of different materials oftentimes. And uh -huh. so those that's where um, like all the energy from a battery comes from chemical reactions. And so at the gotcha. um, negative electrode, those chemical reactions generate electrons and at the positive electrode, those chemical reactions like take in electrons. So there's there's just like a chemical that has too many electrons, basically, and a chemical that doesn't have enough. And you give it you give those electrons a chance to get from one of those places to the other one. But then you cleverly put something in between that uses them somehow. What do they do when they go back in the bottom? Do they come back out the other side? So single-use batteries, so the ones that you use for like kitchen scales or TV remotes, those are called primary batteries, um, and they are generally irreversible. So like once the chemical reaction happens in the electrodes, once the electrons are spewed out or the electrons are taken back in and the chemicals change, um, it is really hard to chemically revert it. So now you've made trash. Yes. You can no longer have a current flow. Um, the, the electrons like don't, they're, they're back in the device technically, but they are not in a form that we can have more current. But rechargeable batteries or uh, secondary batteries basically have easier or safer reversible chemical reactions. So when you charge a battery, you basically do that backwards where you mm -hmm. introduce electrons into the system so that the chemical reactions reverse. At the positive electrode, they spit out electrons and then go back into the negative electrode where they get a bunch more electrons so they're ready to spew out they're ready to like redo the process all over again so basically when you like plug in a computer or a phone you are smushing more electrons into the system so mm. much so that everything happens in reverse 
is my understanding. All right. Uh, so battery, as far as I know, is a, the name of a crime. Uh, is that where it got its name? It is. Like a yeah. bunch of guns. <gasps> really? It, what? Really? It started from there. Well, it became, you basically trace the whole history. So the original word was like violence related, like the, yeah. like assault and battery. Assault is like thinking about hurting someone. Battery is like punching um assault then, is not thinking about hurting someone it's <laughs> saying you're going to hurt someone okay i i don't I know think, the legal i think about hurting people all the time <laughs> <laughs> I, I never tell them I'm going to assault is the threat yeah and then battery yeah. is is the you actually physical action start yeah. punching and then that became artillery or like military we- like weaponry so battery gotcha. became like the th- the tools that you used to bombard your enemies we think the sense came from this idea that you like to bombard, you have a, a battery of stuff. Um, when Ben Franklin first used the word battery in 1749, he had a bunch of like Leyden jar capacitors, um, which are just like jars with foil on the outside uh, and inside and, and like connected with wires. You know, Ben Franklin lightning guy doing electricity stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And he had a bunch of these jars linked together and he was like, wow, a battery. Uh, it's like generating power or it's like this powerful thing. And there's a bunch of them. Mm. So like, ah, I have a battery here. So he himself said that he's made it up. Yeah. Branding genius. We know the guy who said who did it. We know the guy yeah. who did it. Yeah. Not only do we know him, like we know about him. Yeah. Like, I know things about that guy. I've got he's money on with him our, on it. He's on one of our money. Wow. Congratulations <laughs> also. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't think it's a good one. I think he did a bad job, actually. I think that's a stretch. Well, it I, I agree it's a stretch, but I also agree it works, and yeah. I don't get confused. I'm not like using a battery and thinking, I might use this to hurt someone, or this might <laughs> be true. a tool someone has given to me to hurt me. You could slingshot it. That would really mess somebody up. Ah, battery, battery. And you could do it in Battery Park. It'd be battery, battery, battery. You could put a battery in some batter, like batter, like beating. Oh, battery, that battery. is also it's the same root word battery. of like beating things. Battery has D's. That's, doesn't it? It's no, batter. They all have T's. For a second, they all have T's. Everybody, <laughs> they've all got T's. No, no, no. They're none of them are D's. I, I immediately recognized my error. <laughs> For a second, I thought that the stuff, that the stuff the cookies are made of had these. You're like the, little, <laughs> like that. the baseball guy. Hey, batter, batter. Yeah. That, that's still tease, though, but it's that's more still tease. tease. There, is yeah. no, there is no double D one, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's all tease. Yeah, batter, 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 batter. So we get yeah. to sound like these. But things can be worse, and you might say that they are batter. Yeah. A worse battery covered in batter would be a batter, batter. A batter, batter, battery, battery. 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 <laughs> yeah. So we got it totally worked out, everybody. We figured it out 100%. And now it's time to move on to the quiz portion of our show. Batteries, with a T, are an incredible example of human <laughs> ingenuity and everything that we've learned when it comes to chemistry. But nature has also built many of its own useful materials, and scientists have been looking at biology as a potential source when it comes to new types of batteries. So today, we're going to play Secret Ingredient where I tell you about some kind of battery that scientists have made. But I leave out one of the biological ingredients that made the battery possible, and you got four options, and it's up to you to guess 
which the secret ingredient is. Round number one. In the 2010s, the U.S. Department of Defense funded a number of projects that looked at using animals with implantable battery-powered circuits for various applications. Inevitably, that led scientists to explore whether they could use an animal's own metabolic processes as a battery. Which of these four animals was the animal that has been converted into a living battery? Is it an eel, a wombat, a snail, or a shrimp? That was none of them that I was guessing. (laughs) Shrimps kind of look like batteries, hard on the outside, squishy on the inside. Salty, I feel like a battery. A battery's got to be kind of salty, right? (laughs) I think it's a shrimp. I think you could just put a shrimp right in your Game Boy and you could get to town. Yeah, you do want one that's the right size. Yeah. Yeah. It's the right shape and size. They even have wires coming out of their faces. Shrimp. You got got (laughs) the big wires there. But you know what doesn't have big wires sticking out of them? The battery. You just put that in the device. That's true. You don't want big wires. Yeah. Sari. What what do you think they had turned into a battery? I feel like electric eel, they kind of already work like batteries. They're electric organ. It feels straightforward. Sam's shaking his head like I'm yeah, too Sam, easy. Sam's to very distracting. He's it's like, too, absolutely not. It's it too easy. It cannot be eel. I think yeah. they phoned it in. I think it's eel. That's what I'd do if I was trying to make an electric animal. I'd go. I'd start with an electric animal. Sam, did you did you pick one? Shrimp. Yeah, shrimp. Oh, shrimp, shrimp, obviously. <laughs> shrimp's a battery. <laughs> what? So, so the fact, okay, all right, it's hard. It's hard on the outside. It's got to be a shrimp. It's a snail, everybody. It's the snail. <laughs> it's the snail. So that, that one's a win for me. Uh, they've actually tried this out with a few animals, including cockroaches. And in 2012, a group published their work creating a biofuel cell out of snails. They implanted carbon nanotube electrodes in the snail and the electrodes worked with the sugar and oxygen circulating inside of the snail's hemolymph to make electricity. If you're wondering, the snail made less electricity than a single AAA battery, which I mean, how much less? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That seems like quite a lot. (laughs) And, you know, shrimp have hemolymph too, so they're one step away from making a shrimp battery, Sam. Yeah. And when somebody does it, will retroactively give me a point. I'd use one of those big old banana slugs. They look like a double-A battery. You could really get a lot of life out of one of those, I bet. They look like a double-A bat. Aren't they huge? They're like six <laughs> inches long, a banana slug? Yeah, that's like a Maybe like quadruple-A battery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just shove one in one of them big. Well, single, no, it gets smaller than when it gets a double-A, then triple-A is smaller, so it would be a single-A and then half an A. A half an A battery, the banana slug. All right, round two. Most commercial rechargeable batteries are lithium-ion batteries. They're generally made with graphite serving as the anode. But in 2016, scientists wanted to see if they could improve on lithium-ion batteries by replacing graphite with a plentiful material found in nature. Which of the following materials did they use to design a better battery? Was it grass, tree bark, guano, or pollen? Guano's Hmm. precious. I feel like it's not guano. And pollen, that seems, I think that's hard to get. Pollen? Yeah. I mean, right. I often feel as if I need there to be less. Do you park outside? That sounds like the opinion of a man with a garage. I think it's hard to get on a hard to get on a <laughs> a, a big scale, you know, on a commercial scale. Tree okay. bark though. That's everywhere. Who There's plenty needs of tree it? bark. It's true. And they strip it off of trees to make the wood. So they have it sitting around. Grass. You mow your lawn. There's a lot of grass. Yeah, but no one's going around getting that boring. (laughs) (laughs) 
Sam likes to pick an answer and stick with it, <laughs> even if even if he's interrogated on it. He's like, no, I'm yeah. done. Shrimp look like batteries. There's a lot of tree bark in the world. Yeah, a tree bark does feel right to me too. And now I sound like a copycat, but I think it's because, like, if I had to pick a material that felt most similar to graphite to me, of mm. like layered. Complicate, like we don't quite understand uh, wood, yeah. but it's deposited in in interesting, like complex layers yeah, that are is. sort of porous. Huh. That feels right to me, but it's not. It's oh. not tree bark. It's oh, pollen. Shit. It's pollen. Oh. I tried to save you, Sam, but you wouldn't let me. So it's all. This is all about the microstructures. So if you've ever seen a pollen grain with like under like an electron microscope, you will see that they are wild looking shapes. So researchers wanted to see if they could use the microstructures in pollen as a better form of energy storage compared to graphite. And to see how well that would work, they sampled two sources of pollen: honeybees and cattails. I like. I don't know. I would just go straight to the source and not have to bother a bee. But that's just me. <laughs> they heated the pollen to very hot, uh, over a thousand degrees Fahrenheit, in an argon chamber, and then reheated it again to a lower temperature so that it, pores would form within the carbon structures, and the pores allowed for more energy storage. And the researchers were able to use the pollen to create a battery, and the cattail pollen was able to store more energy than the bee pollen, though it wasn't bee pollen it was pollen found from a bee on bees. That they stole from a bee yeah <laughs> the, the bees didn't make it uh and that could be due to uh, the, the the bees collect pollen from lots of different plants so the pollen itself was irregular compared to a more uniform cattail pollen which again is just another good reason to not steal all your pollen from bees mm-hmm. yeah they're probably really grumpy all right round number three lithium is a limited metal in the world, so scientists have been working on creating alternatives, like a sodium ion battery. But because sodium ions are larger than lithium, scientists have also had to work on redesigning the battery anode. This year, researchers announced that they were able to create a sodium ion battery using a material often found in our food. Which of these materials did they use? One, crab shells. Two, chicken bones. Three, orange peels. Or D, honey. Yeah, I did switch to letters there at the end. <laughs> well, didn't we? Didn't we do a crab battery one? I think it might it be my crab, crab battery. Is it the crab battery? Have we caught Naboki in a little in a little accident here, or is <laughs> is she tricking us? Maybe she heard the other episode and was like, "No crab battery." <laughs> I forgot about crab batteries. I think it's the crab I think it's uh, the crab battery. The classic crab battery is my answer. It's crab battery too. Crabbier and this time it's personal. Batterier, batter, crabbier and crab, loving it. Crab, crab batter, crabbery and batterier. Yeah. <laughs> you were right. It's the crab shells. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's only so many facts. Uh, they, yeah. So if you remember this, they, uh, you, they heated crab shells up a bunch and then mixed them with either tin sulfide or iron sulfide, and the scientists. We're also exploring uses, using chitons from crab shells as an electrolyte for other batteries. However, uh, I should quickly point out that all of these answers, while not technically correct, have been used in other battery-related applications. Oh, so we're all right all the time, it turns out. That's right. That's right. And that means that y'all have come out of the game with a tie. Tie ball game. Uh, thanks to Crabattery One to One, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we'll be back with our fact off. 
SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscription services you had, you think you could name them all? And before you just start naming streaming apps, remember that basically everything has a subscription these days. Video games, dating apps, food delivery apps. It's a subscription service world. We're just living in it. And with all of these subscriptions, it can feel like money is just flying out of your account. And that, frankly, sucks. But Rocket Money can help. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money can help you negotiate to lower some bills for you by up to 20%. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in total canceled subscriptions. Escape from the planet of the subscription services and stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Factor, whose ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning. Stress is stressful. (laughs) I don't like it. (laughs) Life just goes and goes, and it doesn't ever stop going. There's always something else to do. And one of those things is a very important thing called eating dinner. To eat dinner, one must pick out what they want to eat and then go to the grocery store and then buy the stuff and then chop the stuff and do other things to the stuff. You have to heat the stuff and put it in water. And then afterwards, you have to take the things that you heated it in and they're gross and you have to make them clean again. Meanwhile, life is still happening that all oh, all oh, that's building up around you. Oh, this is like, terrifying. I'm so, <laughs> I never want to cook again. <laughs> You're right, Factor Ad. I don't. I don't want to have this happen. This is unacceptable. Sometimes, uh, parentheses, all the time, uh, you just don't have the time or the energy for meal planning on top of everything else going on in your life. So thankfully, Factor is here to help. Factor's two-minute meals are your secret weapon come mealtime. You can get chef-crafted meals that are better for you and better tasting than takeout delivered right to your door ready to heat and ready to eat. No prep, no mess, no sink full of dishes, no stress. We're kicking stress out the door in 2024, and I certainly hope that's true for me. <laughs> Heck yeah, Factor. Kick my stress. Right out the door. <laughs> I'm going to get a chest freezer just for these meals. <laughs> oh, you're going to need one because they have over 35 meals to choose from. Flexible ordering options, add-ons, smoothies. Factor offers all sorts of fast, simple solutions when you're too busy to cook. Banish your stress, even if it's just for like one hour while you're eating dinner. Head to factormeals.com slash tangents50 and use code tangents50 to get 50% off. That's code tangents50 at factormeals.com slash tangents50 to get 50% off. Welcome back, everybody. Now get ready for the fact off. Our panelists have brought science facts presented to me in an attempt to blow my mind. And after they have presented their facts, I will judge them and award them Hank Bucks any way I see fit. And to decide who goes first, they have a trivia question. The Oxford Electric Bell is a device housed at the University of Oxford that contains a metal sphere that swings back and forth between two bells. The batteries powering this device are dry, they're called dry piles an early form of electric battery that uses discs made of various materials coated in sulfur. 
Unfortunately, there are no notes remaining to describe what the dry piles are made from, but they have proven to be incredibly durable and are still running today. How long have the Oxford Electric Bell's batteries been running? Okay. Infinite infinite mystery battery, basically. Infinite so far. It it, it will be finite, I think. Yeah, Otherwise- Sari won't Sari won't allow such nonsense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Eventually the universe will end, Sam. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It would be a bigger deal if it was everyone would know about this freaking Oxford electric bell. It'd be plugged into the power grids. We'd all be, all our phones would be Oxford electric bell phones. Is Oxford in England? Yes. Is it? So that makes it, that means it could be really old. (laughs) Yeah, but we're we're a little bit constrained by when the first battery was, I think. Sam isn't. Oldest battery, (laughs) oldest English person, same age for Sam. I think it's been running for 175 years. That's good. That's a great guess. That's well, a completely legitimate in the range. Hmm. I think it's uh, like 1800s is where I'm aiming for. Let's do 200 years ago. You guys were both very close. Uh, well done. Sam is closer. It was 183 wow. years. Oh. <laughs> Good job, Sam, you can, with your British uh, yeah. <laughs> knowledge. Yeah, I was you can go and and uh, you can look. You can look at YouTube videos of it by just searching for Oxford Electric Bell. It's also called the Clarendon Dry Pile. <laughs> which is <the> worst. <laughs> that sounds like a little poopy. Yeah, uh, are you suffering from dry pile? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the charge is so low now that the bear the bell is barely audible. And at, and at some point, the bell will go quiet. We just don't know when. Are we going to cut it open and look at the dry piles to figure out what Once what that happens, of? maybe. But uh, we won't be able to actually cut it open when the bell, after the bell rings its last bell, because that's actually the day that the world ends. Oh, shit. Okay. Well. Yeah. Anyway, Sam, <laughs> you get to go first. <laughs> All right. Well, one thing we haven't mentioned so far in all of our battery talk is how perfectly swallowable most household batteries are. (laughs) Small, cylindrical, cold. You know you've thought about the forbidden satisfaction to be had from swallowing a AA battery. Don't eat a battery. (laughs) Or one of those little watches. You could eat shrimp. Shrimp are like batteries. (laughs) They're like the batteries of the food. (laughs) Or one of those little watch batteries. It's like the uh, ultimate sweet tart. But we're adults, and we can have such flights of fancy without actually eating batteries. Children, on the other hand, according to pediatricians, every year something like 2,500 of those little knuckleheads swallow a battery, and the reality of eating a battery is way less fun than the fantasy of eating one. A battery inside of you exposed to saliva can cause a reaction called water electrolysis, which is when electricity breaks water down into oxygen and hydrogen inside of your body, and you don't want a lot of hydrogen inside of your body. Plus, they're just made out of really bad stuff. So eating batteries is no good, and there are ways to prevent it, like by making the batteries taste bitter. But a team of scientists in Milan took another approach. If kids are going to eat batteries, why not make batteries you can eat? Then they can mow down on a big bowl of batteries (laughs) and be totally fine. So maybe their actual reason had to do with creating safe batteries for implants and sustainability. But they definitely mentioned child safety when unveiling their edible battery earlier in 2023. Take a cathode made of stuff found in almonds, an anode made of riboflavin, an activated charcoal, and a water-based electrolyte. Throw in some nori and a bit of beeswax and yum, yum. You got one tasty battery and it's rechargeable too. 
The battery was inspired by living things that use redox cofactors to create energy. Ooh. And there was no chance that my dumb ass was going to be able to figure out what redox cofactors were. <laughs> oh, I also, as a former chemist, don't love those two words together. <laughs> Only science pa- like papers come up when you search that term. So yeah. it was forbidden <laughs> to me. Maybe one of you can tell me what that is when my fact is over. But the researchers intend this proof of concept battery to show that a future where we create power with safer materials is possible. Though it's not exactly here yet because this battery operates at 48 microamperes for 10 minutes, oh, yeah. which seems to be enough to power an LED light for 10 minutes, which I guess is fine. Uh, another thing about it that kind of sucks, though, is that these researchers said you weren't supposed to eat it on purpose. But good luck stopping me the minute I see one of these things is going straight in my mouth. Uh, the team is working <laughs> a on lucky cracking- charm. That's why they call them that. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) The team is also working on cracking edible transistors that would allow them to build fully edible electronics that can do complicated stuff inside of the body, like monitor the pH of your stomach. But someday, maybe they will make an entire Tiger Electronics game that you can eat when you're done playing. This is the promise (laughs) of the future. (laughs) I do want to eat a hot dog that has a computer in it. Or is a computer. Just a whole... (laughs) Computer hot dog. Just an AI hot dog that you know is experiencing pain <laughs> from being eaten. <laughs> I was thinking like a spy device. Like, oh, I have my like secret message and then I don't want to get caught. Oh, What if it experienced <laughs> pleasure from being eaten instead? Which would be worse? <laughs> <laughs> Thank I you, Papa. Thank you, Papa, yeah, for eating me. No. Thank you for eating me, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Your bowels look great. Uh-huh. I would definitely prefer it to not have any emotions. To have neither of those. <laughs> that's a, if that's Just an option. Just be neutral. Just be neutral about yeah. being eaten, please, hot dog. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I have you guys ever have you ever guys ever licked a button battery? No, I've always mm-hmm. wanted to lick a battery, but I'm too scared. I've licked a D battery before. I've like always one wanted of the square to square ones. That. Yeah, I've licked a nine volt to just see if it was charged. Mm-hmm. What's it do? It zizzles your tongue. I don't know yeah. if it does like water electrolysis to it, and that's what zizzles. But it feels interesting. You feel it. It feels like a feeling, <laughs> and it tastes uh, like metallicy too, a little bit. All right, weird and. Uh, but I think that if you're going to create much charge, no matter what, it's going to be a problem to eat it. So you have to uh, solve that sure. problem some other way. I guess that so makes pr- sense. Part of yeah. the reason why that's edible is that it's just not enough charge to not cause much damage. Enough. Be very careful with button batteries, everybody. And don't eat any battery. Yeah. Don't eat batteries. I was just don't having eat some batteries. Fun, <laughs> you know, I didn't realize a theme of this episode was going to be it. Don't eat batteries, but it's because everybody yeah. wants to do it so bad, or just to, to deny <laughs> ourselves the pleasure. Well, my fact also has to do to, oh. relatedly with eating batteries. Oh, so cool. let's go. So if I saw a store-bought pack of batteries in a lab, I would assume they're for a graphing calculator or a flashlight or any number of random office supplies, or I guess a curious scientist who wants to taste a bitterant. Um, a lot of these single-use batteries from AAAs to D-cells can discharge around 1.5 volts of electrical energy. Not all of them. 
But in general, that, that voltage works for small electronics. But these kinds of batteries were also the key to the first ever published experiments that demonstrated how the platypus can use its bill to de- detect electricity. And this was a big Ooh. deal because it's the first time electroreception was reported in a mammal or anything non-fish, non-amphibian. So to give a sense of the research timeline, scientists figured out that fish, like sharks, could sense electric fields in the water around 1958 or 1960. So my vague guess is that a lot of the weird electricity-related biology focus was on them for a while. But around 1983 or 1984, biology researchers noticed some pores in the bill skin of platypuses that looked oddly similar to the mucus-filled electroreceptive pores on fish skin. And then in a paper published in 1986, a joint Australian-German team studied platypus behavior using some very fun, in my science expert opinion, methodology. So they had four platypus subjects and a pool that was three meters in diameter and filled with tap water up to 40 centimeters deep for them to swim around in. And I think they tested one platypus at a time because they described that when a platypus was hungry, it basically circled the bottom of the pool, touching the edge with one leg, with its eyes, ear canals, and nostrils all closed and kind of like sweeping its bill back and forth to search for traces of food to eat. Uh, And my favorite of the experiments they conducted involved putting three objects at the bottom of the pool, each spaced 10 centimeters from the other two a charged 1.5 volt uh, alkaline battery, a dead battery, and a dead shrimp tail. And that last Ah! one is food. Uh, (laughs) But basically a battery, too. But they knew. They They knew. knew. Um, (laughs) It's not a mystery that shrimp are basically batteries. Shrimp are basically (laughs) batteries because platypuses eat wrigley aquatic stuff like larvae, Mm -hmm. worms, shrimp, and crayfish. But when the platypuses were swimming around in these conditions, they, quote, established a clear preference for the active battery and tried to chomp it. The methodology, don't eat the battery. Don't no. eat the battery. But they tried to because they were trying to detect a little electricity, electric field, and the battery was the only one with the field. So the methodology wasn't as spelled out as modern papers. So I don't know statistically how many times they tried this to establish preference, uh, but they did it enough that a great picture of a platypus chomp was on the cover of volume 319 of Nature when this study was published. They also did measure that the platypuses seemed to detect electric fields from these batteries at distances when the fields were around 300 microvolts to 2 millivolts per centimeter. And then they measured the really slight electric field that's generated from the muscular tail flicks of a living freshwater shrimp, wow, which range from so around right. 0.2 <laughs> to 1 millivolt per centimeter. And that fits right into yeah. the battery range they tried to chomp. So when shrimp are freaking out and wiggling in muddy water, that actually helps platypuses find them as they're poking their bills around. And it's around the same electric field. It's a 1.5-volt battery. To a platypus, there's no distinction between a battery and a shrimp. (laughs) Wow. I'm about as smart as one platypus. That's what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm probably like a pretty smart platypus, but... You're a very smart platypus, Sam. You would be the smartest platypus in the uh, the history of platypuses. Okay. Okay. So now it is my choice and my responsibility and privilege to decide... Which of these science facts is better? Is it the platypus and the shrimp and the battery? Or is it the edible battery so I can have a sentient hot dog that enjoys being eaten (laughs) and seeing my entire insides? Or possibly a Tiger Electronics game. It's Sari. It's (gasps) Sari. 
Yay! Totally, that's deserved. My you my teed me up is, though, Sam. With your I really had to add battery. a lot of extra stuff about eating batteries to make my fact long enough. So that <laughs> that's fine. And you guys were tied going into it. So Sari is the winner of the episode. Congratulations! And now it is time for Ask the Science Couch, where we've got a listener question for our couch of finely honed scientific minds. The Vortex on Discord and at Koviox and at CJMCKZA on YouTube ask, what battery technology looks the most promising for grid scale storage? I mean, tech, like I actually know the answer to this question and it's probably going to be different from Sari's answer because I have an opinion. Oh, okay. That's exciting for me. I did less research than normal, hoping that you would have an opinion and or <laughs> knowledge about this because it's eco geek territory. It is very much my is my scene. Um, it's your beat. So I I would say not chemical. I so like most batteries you think of are storing through chemical means. But like we have started to use the word battery for other ways of storing energy. Like you got gravity batteries where you just lift a very heavy thing up when you have extra power, and then you let that very heavy thing fall when you need to get the power back, it's not going to be gravity batteries. But I think it it might (laughs) very well be thermal batteries, which heat up usually through resistance. So you like run an electric current through something, and it's not a good conductor. And so instead of conducting that electricity, it just gets hot. Uh, You heat up a big block of something, and then when you need to get that heat out, Uh, or the the energy that you put in out, you either run water over it and it creates steam and that runs a turbine, turbine, or you uh, actually, this is a weird one, it gets so hot that it glows, right? There's like thousands of degrees Fahrenheit sometimes. Uh, So you actually, you can capture the photons that come off of it with solar panels. That was wild. I didn't know that was an option. Or you can have the photons like go and shine on a pipe full of water and that that water will vaporize because the photons are so high energy. That seems to be the most promising option right now. Um, and it, cause it's like a lot of this is about like just a, just how do you do it cheaply? So like you want really cheap materials and available materials. So like stuff that's around. So the, the one that I was reading about recently is graphite based or carbon Mm -hmm. Um, and carbon is a very common industrial material. You could build a lot of these things without it being even a a tiny fraction of the total carbon consumption, which mostly is coming to like steel and applications like that right now. And and that just seems right now better than chemical batteries, which are also, I think going to be important, but these can kind of hold energy for longer and take in more and also can be useful for applications that just need heat, which is, kind of an important thing in decarbonization right now because there are a lot of things that we just burn natural gas for Mm -hmm. and that's really cheap just burning natural gas to like boil off the orange juice so you can have orange juice concentrate or for concrete manufacturing or steel or whatever so to find a way to turn renewables into just heat and to be able to use that heat industrially but then also to be able to if you need to convert that into electricity is great and could could help us with the uh, sort of incoming problem, which is that we've got uh, too much electricity sometimes and not enough other times, but almost like so much too much electricity that's becoming a problem for the places in the US, at least where there's the best opportunity for renewables like wind and solar, like 
we aren't building them anymore because during the times when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, we're like creating too much power. Like there's, we're satisfying 100% of demand in those areas. So you need for the next step in this process, we're going to need this power storage. So right now, is there no, no power storage? Oh yeah, there's what? power storage. Okay. There's some just... thermal online, but there's a lot of chemical online. It's remarkably efficient to store it as heat and it is cheap. There's just like the materials are le- much less expensive than trying to create these fancier batteries. Even though most chemical storage isn't like a very fancy lithium ion battery that you'd find in your phone. It's simpler, usually simpler battery chemistry. Yeah. And a lot of the current storage system, in my understanding, coming from this, I haven't been learning about this for decades, is uh, pumped storage, uh, like hydroelectricity. So pumping water up into reservoirs and then um, having Mm -hmm. them power turbines or converting that again into electricity. And that's super, that's super cheap. It's basically a pump, some kind of usually oftentimes a pre-existing hydroelectric situation. So you don't have to build the dam, but that's kind of terrain dependent. Like you need the right situation in order to be able to build it. Uh, what else you got, Sarah? Anything? You that? <laughs> <laughs> Not as good as that. I, I did. So I did some research into what like electrochemical batteries are out yeah. there for grid scale. Yeah, am I right that it's mostly more like simpler chemistries than lithium ion? Yeah, there is like, it feels like everyone is on the lithium ion train of like lithium ion everything in the way that, and I think part of that is like marketing and to some extent Elon Musk being like, I'm going to make my (laughs) Teslas run on lithium ion and then I'm going to make lithium ion power storage. Right, yeah. If you got like home power storage, that's often lithium ion, yeah. Yeah, and so there is some degree of... uh, like battery storage power plants that are made with lithium ion batteries, but they are orders of magnitude less than uh, like pumped storage power plants that exist right now. I think like you said, Hank, the the cheaper, easier batteries, um, like lead acid batteries, which are a type of rechargeable battery that was invented a while ago, like 1859, yeah. like as, as batteries were starting to become a thing, lead acid batteries started to exist. And they're often what are in like cars or powered mm-hmm. wheelchairs or things like that. Um, you can have liquid lead acid batteries with like sulfuric acid inside as, as the electrolyte, um, or you can have gel versions and, and lead acid batteries are fairly common in like grid scale battery storage attempts. There are some molten salt batteries, which are very weird, where you basically like solidify the electrolyte and then you need to melt it or or something, like make it a liquid again in order to discharge the battery. So you mm. store an energy and that the idea right. is that you can you can keep it for longer by making it solid so the, the ions move around less. They still gradually diffuse because there are always a little bit of wiggles going on. Mm-hmm. Like even, even a solid thing is mm-hmm. still moving slightly. And then there's another like that I think gets lumped in with electrochemical batteries because it works similarly, but isn't quite the same. Um, but it isn't quite as, as far away as these like thermo storages is called a flow battery or a redox flow battery. So bringing back oh, that no. term, uh, <laughs> oh, Sam. No, no. Uh, These are like big tanks of liquid, right? Yeah, they're so yeah. weird. So basically the, this idea of redox um, is oxidation reduction reactions, which basically are just 
reactions that involve the transfer of electrons from one thing to another. And a redox cofactor would be a molecule that would work together with an enzyme to do a redox reaction, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, I think that that is right. I think that's what that is, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. So basically something that makes the redox reaction go faster or more efficiently or um, with a higher probability of it happening. Flow batteries are just, yeah, two, two big tanks and they each tank holds a giant amount of liquid electrolyte. And one is positively charged and one is negatively charged. And each, each tank contains atoms or molecules that are like primed to react to either release or to store electrons. And so they mm-hmm. pump these, these electrolytes into a, a place that's separated by a membrane where, where the reaction actually happens. But until you, until you need them to react, you just store them in the big tanks. And then when you need right. the energy again, you, you mix them together. And then you just have wow. a, and then you just make bigger and bigger tanks. Yeah. And so that's why it's like cheap, easy, because yeah. if, if you can make a big tank, then you can make a, a redox flow battery, basically. My favorite battery technology is um, putting everybody's thermostats on uh, a sort of like unified thingy. And then knowing when there's a lot of extra electricity, you like turn everybody's air conditioners on and then you turn them off when there's not. You're like, okay, it's going to be a hot day. We're going to turn everybody's air conditioners on. They're going to store that cool air inside of the house for the rest of the day. And we're not going to have the air conditioner on in the nighttime. And I'm like, I like this. I like this idea. That's a cute idea. What? That counts as a battery? Kind of. You're like storing energy. You don't get to capture it back. But yeah. Call it a virtual power plant, which is fun. I want to do a SciShow on virtual power plants someday. Collective action as battery. Well, and like it also is just like good because like those times when 100% of electricity is being provided by renewables, it just becomes very cheap to do anything during those moments. So anything you could do with the electricity you have when the electricity is basically free um, becomes a good idea. If you want to ask the Science Couch your questions, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we'll tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week. Or you can join the SciShowTangents Patreon and ask us on our Discord. Thank you to at Yojo Musical on Twitter and at RobinGreatBanks9051 on YouTube and everybody else who asked us your questions for this episode. If you like this show and you want to help us out, it's so easy to do that, and you should. First, you can go to patreon.com slash SciShowTangents become a patron and get access to things like our newsletter and our bonus episodes. Shout out to patron Les Aker for their support. Second, you can leave us a review wherever you listen. That helps us know what you like about the show and it helps other people find us. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell Tell people about us. Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. And I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is created by all of us and produced by Jess Stempert, who has just joined our team. Hello, Jess. Jess is in the room right now. Hello. Hello. Thank you for producing SciShow Tangents. I'm so happy to be here. I'm still going to be around, everybody. Don't worry about it. Yeah, thanks. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> our associate producer is Eve Schmidt. Our editor is Seth Glicksman. Our story editor is Alex Billow. Our social media organizer is Julia buzz Our editorial assistant is Deboki Trucker-Vardy. Our sound design is by Joseph Tuna-Menish. Our executive producers are Nicole Sweeney and me, Hank Green. And of course, we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted.
But one more thing. In a paper published in September 2013, a team of engineers created what they called a microbial battery. They used a cathode made of silver oxide and used an anode coated with exoelectrogenic bacteria, which are microbes that eat stuff and then spew electrons outside of their cell body. The liquid electrolyte of the battery doubled as a food source for those bacteria. So to see if they could make it work, they first tested a glucose solution. After that, though, they tested an electrolyte of wastewater from the sewage pipes of Escondido Village at Stanford University, which is presumably (laughs) the grad student housing where the researchers (laughs) lived. Uh, This microbial battery was capable of extracting roughly 22% of the energy stored in the organic sewage waste, a.k.a. grad student poop, uh, which is on par with the energy efficiency of some solar cells. But it doesn't look like they've done follow-up studies since then, so maybe they just flushed this idea down the drain in favor of other (laughs) not-so-shitty batteries. Boo, we gotta do it. 2013, (laughs) we could just have our our sewer pipes filled with electronics-generating thingies. Why not? Sentient hot dogs. Sentient hot dogs were the sewer pipes all along. And they're like, I love it down here, Father. (laughs) Thank you for the poo.